Phil's Breakfast Metal episode 26. Um, this year we're sort of coming down from our huge end of the year splurge of death metal and all things extreme. Um, and Phil and I thought we'd check out some of the non-metal albums that we really like. So this is sort of our rock episode where we've picked four albums that we really like which don't technically count as metal but we'd still really like to talk about. Um, so the first album, to get straight into it, that we want to talk about is Blast Tyrant by Clutch, or to give it its full title, Blast Tyrant Atlas of the Invisible World with Illustrations of Strange Beasts and Phantasms, um, which was released in 2004 by Clutch. Now Clutch are a really interesting band because they started off as sort of this sort of hardcore punk metal-y thing. I say like hardcore meets blues, like the first yeah, album, so yeah. it has that kind of vibe of the two just clashed together. And gradually over time, the blues sort of picked up more and more and more and they became this these sort of blues rock titans that we know today who do blues rock with sort of stonery and punky and metal elements in places, which is, I think, quite unlike a lot of the other blues rock or stoner bands that are out there. And yeah, I think Blast Tyrant is the sort of purest distillation of that hard rock with a really solid basis in blues. Um, incredibly groovy, but then with moments of like really punky energy and the heaviness that they get from some of that punk and metal influence. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's one of the weirdest and catchiest albums I can name. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So this episode, we're covering four bands that basically, they're all very much rock acts, but they all have enough of a connection to the metal world, mm. mostly just through fan base. But there's something about their sound that seems to appeal to metalheads. Yeah. And Clutch are a weird one, because I'd say, barring possibly the last two albums, there is nothing metallic in their sound at all. Yeah, it, yeah. It is, it is started off, like, the first album is very much a hardcore album. A weird hardcore album, but a hardcore album. And then that slowly gets, like, distilled down where there's less and less hardcore, and, the, and more and more blues, or more and more mm. traditional kind of classic rock-type sounds. Yeah. Um, so this is the sixth album of their career, and this trajectory has kind of continued all the way through those first five into this. Like the album before, Pure Rock Fury, um, the album title is very appropriate because it is like a pure kind of rock album. Yeah. yeah. Um, the change that happened with this album that's kind of amazing and makes it stand out in their career, I find, is they went from being a very much a band that had the individual songs. There might have been a bit of an overall theme to the album. But this is the album where they attempted like a full concept to the point of not just the lyrics are all linked together, but there's like musical motifs that go through this. Like there's there's like a, a short like instrumental interlude. There's there's tracks that like their lengths are condensed and so on mm, to fit mm. with this kind of theme. Or like if there's only a tiny bit of lyrics to deliver in a song, they'll just have you know <laughs> five lines and then the song ends like yeah, yeah. and it's it's something they did on just this album and have never done anything like it since like they pretty much straight away after this enter like the proper second phase mm. of clutch where they kind of shred a lot of the rock elements and become almost pure blues like you get to an album like strange cousin from the west that is basically a blues album or you can see the sort of beginnings of that on this because the um, second album that comes with it basket of eggs is a is just a clutch blues album there's yeah. a few original songs on there and then there's some blues covers of some of the songs on blast tyrant and some other songs it's it's also really great um and if you like the sort of more stripped back stuff it's just great to hear clutch really breathe mm. but the thing that this album does i think better than almost any other album i can think of is it sounds enormous like <laughs> the guitar riffs on this sound bigger than 
any guitar riff on anything. There's just something about the sound, the way they've mixed it, the way they've mixed the guitars, the bass, and the sort of uber-precise drumming, which just gives it this huge feel. It's got this massive punk energy to it. Um, and then you put on top of that Neil Fallon's vocals, um, <laughs> some of the greatest vocals known to man. Yeah, uh, Neil Fallon is, is like a truly incredible vocalist. It just He has that totally unique voice. Of, mm. It's like a very low... Um, a very low rock voice, but the way he writes lyrics and structures, like how he does the vocals, means he always sounds completely unique in his yeah. songs. Like, they, they, I think his lyric writing is intrinsically tied to why his voice is so good, mm. because he writes these bizarre nonsense poetry songs yeah. that, they, I don't know why, he's just such a memorable vocalist, though. Yeah, it's it's kind of when you listen to Clutch and when you read the lyrics, it really reminds me of listening to old Sabbath and Zeppelin. And just you've got these really weird things that don't seem to make any sense or go anywhere, but they're kind of hypnotic. <laughs> listening to the things he says, you're like, oh, I mean, that sounds kind of cool. But then if you if you go and look up at Clutch's website, they've got a bunch of lyric videos which Neil Fallon's done explaining the lyrics to some of the songs, and it's really cool listening to him and how he conceptualizes all of this stuff. Um, like Cypress Grove on this album um, is about Artemis. Um, and it's about, um, he turns someone into a stag, or someone is turned into a stag, and then eaten by their own dogs. Ah, yeah, Artemis is the Greek goddess of the hunt, and she turns someone into a stag, and then they get eaten by their own dogs. And Cypress Grove is all about that. And I have no idea how it is, but when I heard Neil Fallon explain it, I fully got how it worked. We'll come back to this, because that actually ties it into the concept. That's, that's really cool. I didn't realise it was about... Like that myth combined with what it does in the concept of like what it does, what its position in the overall concept of the album. Before we get into that, we should probably give some background to Clutch because mm. some of you may have never come across them or just never given them time beyond the cursory like having heard their cover of Electric Worry. Yeah, yeah. But um, so they were formed in 1991, so they've been around for absolutely ages and really quite uniquely. But I guess we've covered a few bands like this now, considering they're a band that have been going for. Close like well over twenty five years mm. now. They've never had a lineup change beyond they had a different vocalist before their first demo came out, mm. and they briefly recruited a keyboard player for two albums, and that is the only change. They've always been Neil Fallon as vocals and occasional second guitar, yep. uh, Tim Salt guitar, Dan Mains bass, and Jean Paul Gaster on drums, and it's always this core. And there's something about them. That produces this, like, because they are so used to each other. They mm, produce this mm. incredible sound. And the reason it's so different to, like, any kind of, you know, like, classic heavy metal counterparts, even trying a more blues influence thing, Clutch have this jammed feel. Yeah. All the, yeah. And I think they write this way, but all their songs feel like a band just jamming around with blues riffs. They still come mm. up with something quite unique, but I think it's because they've been working together for so many years. They've got the sort of point where they can jam out really interesting stuff. Yeah. The thing when you listen to Clutch, it sounds like it's just some guys who've got together in a room and are just playing and they've just hit on exactly the right thing and it's all going well. But all of it sounds like that. It sounds at the same time sort of jammed out and super precise. You know, like if you listen to Jean-Paul Gaster's drumming, it is on point. Every single groove is exactly what it should be for that bit in the song. And all the transitions are sort of perfect and as we say mm. the whole structure of the album is just done so so well considering this album's got a lot of songs on it 15 tracks yeah it's it's a long album for you know one of these rock blues albums yeah i, I mean it, the, like 
if you can think of a rock album that closes on 60 minutes yes. where it's high quality start to finish I mean it's something I'd argue Clutch haven't really managed for a lot of their albums like the three albums that follow this all have a little bit of filler mm, mm. two most recent I'd say near enough for, yeah yeah like the last two albums they did are the other two we probably considered covering but we decided to go for this one just because mm. it's probably the most exciting of all of theirs yeah I think so but yeah like just this whole band of this perfect outfit like Everyone gets their own sort of time to shine. John Paul's the obvious point of it because he's such an interesting and groovy drummer. Like yeah. he he just writes perfect beats for everything. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. he makes riffs more interesting by yeah. what he yeah. puts underneath them. Well, and it's nothing. It's never something that's super technical. Although he has a fantastic feel, and like some of the feels he plays are just wonderful. But it's never anything super fast or super difficult. But it's always just the right thing. Um, you know, there's some a couple of songs on here which begin with just drum grooves, and then like you hear the guitar come in over the top, and like it's just a bit of a weird drum groove. It's not super difficult, but it's just a little bit off, and it makes the song just feel a little bit different to another band who are just doing more straight up, you know, rock or blues rock music. Definitely, and I think a lot of that comes from like I was watching a kind of tour documentary of them where. They, they were saying Jean-Paul just has his drum kit set up in a trailer and will just go out there and practice for four or five hours straight. And so he's one of these really hard-working musicians. But a lot of musicians you think about, the kind of people who put that kind of crazy effort into practice, they're, really, they're often really showy. They're the kind mm, of musician, mm. you know, those kind of guitarists who will do those like amazing sweet picking, like, yeah, yeah. like super flashy solos. But he's not that. I mean, occasionally he gets a drum solo in a set, but like even those are kind of like quite groovy and yeah, fun. Like they're short and tasteful. He takes, I think, just as much influence from old jazz drummers as he does rock drummers. He just does exactly the minimum that is required to just make it sound good. Yeah, and, and that's all he needs to do. And then we have Dan Mains, who is a brilliant bass player. He mm. he uses one of, like. Uh, I think it's like that old Thunderbird style of bass, which, like, it, it look it up, like, it's a very distinctive looking thing, and it just has that nice clean bass tone, like, and he just sits perfectly in the mix with the drumming, like, yeah. he locks in with Jean Paul's grooves, and it just gives this kind of structure for Tim and Neil to build upon. And, mm, like, mm. the bass is never that flashy, but it's always just locked in nicely with yeah. the drums, makes the songs really catchy. And it just gives it this super, like, I guess really complete feel like you feel as if every frequency of sound is somehow being hit at the same time it's just all encompassing when the groove finally comes in but then they can also cut it back on songs like Regulator and Ghost um, you know they'll cut back to just some like acoustic blues guitars and then they can build it back up seamlessly into this giant sound um, yeah there's a fair range on this album of that sort of sonic and dynamic levels I think like the the like the first track is a brilliant like if you haven't yeah. like so I got into this band actually not it would have been not long after this album came out um I'd been told by a friend they were really good and I was just in one of those moods where I saw the cover in the shop and was like that looks great I'm just going to it was a fiver I'm just going to buy it and I put it on and the first track Mercury because I didn't know what I was going to get I knew they were a rock or metal band of mm, a sort mm. beyond that and Mercury comes in with this like just as we were talking about this amazing kind of bluesy rock groove. Well, um, it starts off with a ridiculous bit of acapella from what, Neil Fowler. No, no, it's it's, it's like twenty seconds yeah, of like yeah, the yeah. cool blues rock, and then that sort of yeah, yeah. stops, and Neil Fallon just like sort of comes in with his bizarre voice, like just screams a couple of lines, and then and the then, groove comes and back then in. It starts, and then before you 
really got your head around what's going on. Mercury has finished mm. and the first song's over. And then I think what you were saying earlier is really great about that in that it seems that that's all they had to say in that song. And therefore they just did it and yeah. then cut it. They didn't feel, oh, let's stretch this out into a full song. Let's just, that's our statement of intent and we've done it. So the song's over. Yeah. And then, like, it, it ends with just the guitar fading out, but, like, they've clearly weirdly affected the guitar mm. to make some, like, this kind of strange stuttering noise. Yeah. And then you get into Prophets of Doom, which is just more a sound of rock song. You're like, oh, okay, I can <laughs> I can now understand what's going on yeah. here. But on first pass, I remember hearing this just being like, I've, I've never heard anything like this. I don't yeah. know what this is. It's just such a weirdly structured song, but I love it. it. It's always a bit of a surprise to come back to the album, even when you know what's there, because you just don't hear stuff like that very often. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, as Rob sort of mentioned earlier, we may as well get into this now, like, the album has this really interesting concept, but so heavily layered in metaphor and poetry that it's it's hard to resolve. But it gives this song, the songs, this really nice thing of you can listen to them multiple times and go, oh, this is, I think this is what is going on in the plot here. The, so the lyric book helps with this because there's loads of like, little pictures of characters and story. But roughly, I think the concept, and I've been over this loads of times, I still can't quite work it out. It's a regular source of discussion, like, with friends <laughs> who love this album. But it's about this character called the Worm Drink, who's conscripted into the army of the Blast Tyrant, and basically gets fed up with it and uh, deserts. But in this universe, I think deserting is just not a thing people have thought to do. Mm. And it seems this massively awful thing by the Blast Tyrant. And he sends all manner of people out to mm. hunt down and kill the Worm Drink. And we sort of follow the Worm Drink through this story of him sort of trying to get away and like dealing with certain challenges. And then finally... He is caught by a group of huntresses initially introduced in Cypress Grove. Uh, yeah, yeah. And shot Matching and up. sort of like dies at. I think he, he like either dies in a field or pretends to. And then we get to the kind of like the final arc of the album where this girl, La, La Curandera, um, either, either like through magic powers resurrects him or just nurses him back to health. And the final. Um, the kind of final track with lyrics is the trial of La Curandela, where she's caught by the blast tyrant and put on mm. trial for witchcraft. <laughs> and and it's sort of like that song sort of implies it's completely like the witchcraft is a completely made up charge. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, it's just it, and then like the track before that ghost, one of the aforementioned kind of um uh more mellow tracks mm. of the album, deals with the character sort of the character of the worm drink coming back home and like finding his wife's already been married off and like him having to deal with with that through a me- like a metaphor about Lazarus. Yeah. So yeah. Th- there's a lot of stuff going on with the lyrics where there's mixture of this fantasy story in with old famous myths and legends to give mm. you ideas what's going on and then like modern day references. Yeah. Mixes it all together into one sort of like narrative throughout it. And it is really rewarding to listen and try to work out what's going on in the album. That's not something you can say about most blues rock albums. No, no, exactly. Like, so, Cypress Grove, you were talking about it's that that kind of, the metaphor, mm. the myth going on there. The other thing with it is it's meant to be an introduction to the characters of the Huntresses. <laughs> yeah. And that whole thing about the guy getting eaten by his own dogs. The dogs are also like their hounds in it. So oh, yeah, yeah. Th- there's a, like a last line of a chorus that keeps changing of like, mm. there's like their car always has a different item in yes, the back of it. Yeah, yeah. So it starts off with the bloodhounds and eventually ends up with like 
a kind of burlap sack with a body in it. (laughs) And it's it's introducing these characters who are clearly extremely dangerous. Mm, mm. But it's a really cool, yeah, just way of reusing myths and modern stories within a narrative. It just makes it more rewarding to work out what each song is about. And it's why I kind of wish Neil Fan did more of this. Because I've always read about his lyric writing. He kind of... um, he writes through a rhyming dictionary. Uh, yeah. So that's how he gets like a lot of these, these bits. Because there's bits in there. There's some bits I just don't think the lines are of any use. Like, yeah. there's, there's, there's bits which are plot and bits which are just like, here's a cool yeah, like, yeah, yeah. rhyme or something. But I just really like that structurally. I think we're going to find, though, this is going to be a running theme of all the bands we cover. You're either going to like the vocals and get it, yeah. Or you're not gonna have any. You're gonna hate the vocalist, and it will kind of ruin the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't realize it was possible, but there are people who do dislike Neil Fallon's vocals. Um, oh, also, if you never yeah. come across Clutch, just want to get this random fact in about them. Um, uh, like you will have heard him at some point because he's the guest vocalist on the end of Mastodon's Blood and Thunder. Yeah, yeah, he does a fantastic bit on that. It's so. probably like the most memorable bit of lyrics in any Mastodon song. Yeah, yeah, it's the split your lungs with Blood and Thunder bit. But yeah, he's yeah he's fantastic, um, and he's just got such a sort of charisma to him. I mean, yeah, a lot of the vocalists we talk about today have got this certain charisma where you just know it's them. And with Neil Fallon, his voice and his lyrics just make him completely unique. There's no one who even approaches his sort of sound that I'm aware of. Yeah, yeah, completely. Because um, he's got this old sort of Deep South Blues sound. Yeah, yeah. Although, yeah, isn't old or Deep South. No. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, he has the voice of, like, you imagine, like, kind of like one of his original blues guys, mm. but it's this tiny little, like, New yeah, York white yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And and I don't think he does it that much on this album, but he can scream when he really needs to. Yeah, yeah, he, he has... Because he has that nice thing of, like, he's a clean singer most of the time, but he can really, you know, put that, like, harsh scratch in his voice yeah, if, yeah. if he needs to. Like, actually, on one of the more mellow tracks, The Regulators has this brilliant yeah, build, yeah. like, starting off with just gentle slide guitar and, like, an acoustic guitar in the background slowly adding in layers and layers until it builds up into a full-blown rock song. And for the chorus, he adds this kind of quite, yeah, slightly scratchy-sounding voice mm. to really bellow out. And then comes back down to just a low, kind of mournful, clean tone for, like, the, the kind of verse and refrain. It's like, that, that's brilliant. That's such a... Yeah. That gives the song so much more weight and power because mm. he can vary up and keep a lot of emotion in there. Yeah, the, the regulator is probably the one which is best known now. I think it was on The Walking Dead recently. Um, so that I saw that being shared around a lot. So if you've heard The Regulator, definitely check out the rest of the album because hearing it within the full context, it will sort of blow your mind because pretty much everything else is as good on this album. Yeah, and it moves through a load of like really interesting like kind of things because like, you've got The Regulator say, like with slide guitar and like kind of more of a cool rock groove mm. but then you get something like Army of Bono that yeah. sounds like an unused Rage Against the Machine riff. like yeah, yeah. Like, it's properly all the way down to like some kind of Tom Morello style like yeah weird guitar, guitar noodling yeah, like, <laughs> yeah it's just just really interesting and then you have like a lot of stuff later on that's very different again Ghost is mellow but in a completely different way to a regulator mm, mm. and then the, the final instrumental what you see is what you get is just the perfect example of how much of a jam band they are because yeah, it, yeah. it is this whole thing of like a bass and drum groove that keeps like shifting slightly but then the guitars sort of have these little improvised bits of noodling over mm. which are quite clear like this is someone who's just listening to this riff and going like oh this would be cool and like <laughs> 
and then like little bits of like um, organ that actually Neil Fallon plays on this album oh, added cool. in. There's like four tracks with a bit of keyboard. Yeah, I remember hearing that. Didn't oh, I was... organ actually. Yeah, but, yeah so Neil Fallon playing it, and it's it's kind of um, typifies where they were going to go because mm. after this album, they actually bring in a keyboard player to their touring lineup, and then officially the band and added a bit of that into their sound until they toured a motorhead and decided they want to be heavy again. <laughs> yeah, I guess we should mention as well, Tim Salt, the um, guitar player and clutch, or lead guitar player, uh, can just write some amazingly simple, short and really tasty guitar licks. Yeah. Um, Regulator's yeah. a great example of just these really short passages, but just incredibly bluesy, um, which fit in perfectly and then straight back into the main rhythm, which just add this little extra layer to everything that's there. And again, just like everyone else in Clutch, um, potentially other than Neil Fallon, he's not showy. No. He just does exactly what needs to be done. Um, and like the fact that um, both Dan, Tim and Jean-Paul Gasser are all sort of like this gives this stage for Neil Fallon to go off on all his sort of weird tangents and no one feels like they're outstaying their welcome. Everything feels as if it's in exactly the right place and doing what they need to do for the album and the songs. Because I think Clutch Rabadi very much work on that kind of less is more kind of formula. Mm. Most of the songs on this album are under three minutes. Like yeah, it, yeah. They are really condensed, tightly written, and it's how they get away with having 15 tracks. Yeah, they yeah. just had to bring hundreds of riffs to the table. Mm. There wasn't, they couldn't repeat all that much. So... And, and like Tim Salt's perfect with that because his guitar solos, short, tasteful blues licks. Yeah, like, yeah. That's absolutely perfect. I remember as a kid hearing it being like, oh, it'd be interesting if they had a good guitarist because <laughs> I've been listening to, like, you know, going through like Arch Enemy and stuff yeah, like that, yeah. which is like super flashy, yeah. like, lead guitar. And this is so different. I just couldn't get my head around. He might be equally brilliant, but just. Just in a completely different way. Just like Jean Paul Gaston might be just as good as George Calais, but. Just a completely different purpose that they're going for and often just as hard to write like this tiny little catchy lick where it's all really clear and you're going to hear every single bit and it sounds a bit naff, people aren't going to like it, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> never never gets to that point on this album. Yeah, because I feel like this is a career highlight and I almost wish they would try something this ambitious again because it's by far and away like the most out there thing they tried. Yeah, I think it was kind of a um, reaction to their previous album. Because the band mm. all hate Pure Rock Theory. Yeah, yeah. And I can kind of see why. Because I really like it as an album. But I think the production's not good. Yeah, production suffers on that. Like, the guitar tone's all really buzzy and kind of annoying. Whereas this has got this really warm, rich kind yeah, of sound yeah, to yeah. it. Um, and also, it had a few things. Like, it had that track, um, Careful With That Mic, where Neil Fallon sort of got accused of not being able like his vocals being him not being able to rap and kind of doing yeah, something instead yeah, yeah. so he actually released like a rap diss track <laughs> and then like but he said like he thought it was funny and then really regretted it because he didn't want to get lumped in with new metal yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there was a, I, and so I think they kind of purposely was that this album went we're going to go totally out there and just mm, try something mm. really different and original. Yeah, there's just, there's a huge ambition to doing this album and they did manage to pull it off. So I'd love to see them trying something like this again. Although, again, that being said, as we mentioned, the last two most recent albums have also been fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And actually, you're almost leaning in this direction again because you look at, say, Psychic Warfare. Yeah. Psychic Warfare is topped and tailed by these bits where, like, a character's being... So, like, yeah, it's like, it's like a kind of, some kind of 
FBI agent or something mm, is inter- mm. like interviewing someone. So he starts by asking a question, and the album ends by him sort of reacting as yeah. if the whole the whole album is the story <laughs> yeah, being yeah, told. Yeah, it's just a him. little flashback or something as the questions asked. Yeah, yeah. So it, it does feel like they're sort of recapturing that again, and I think that's the reason why they're suddenly becoming this force again of like their albums are getting back to being truly brilliant Mm, there's not mm. one in their career I really hate like saying their albums have filler like they've all got tracks that are absolutely brilliant but yeah like Strange Cousins particularly the I think ninth album they did Mm. has about three good tracks and the rest of it is just it's just too bluesy it's just like I've heard this before like Mm, mm. yeah it's, it's that unique mix of that hard rock and punk influence with the blues, which really makes Clutch special. Yeah, yeah. Um, we could probably go about them all day. Like, <laughs> kind of the point of this episode was us to just dump all the knowledge on bands we know everything yeah. about, um, <laughs> but can't really work into the yeah, show yeah, normally. Yeah. So yeah, don't worry, next episode we'll be back to something like heavy and metallic. But yeah, talking of not heavy and metallic, um, we're going to leave you with one of... I think one of the highlights of this album, but not yeah. a particularly popular one. I don't know if they've ever played it live. I agree with that. It's one of my favourite tracks of Clutch in general, actually. Yeah, yeah. But this is from near the, near the end of the album. It's the story of the worm drink returning home. This is the track Ghost. Leather soles go shuffling in, stinking of smoke and tense and chin. Now, who will toast our noble host who has this morning given up the ghost? The wooden coffer, hand to hand, kind words are offered. Silent prayers, but she is satisfied the most while stabbing madly at the roast. The riverbed of the eyes of Eve, the sons of Cain receive no reprieve. The riverbed of the eyes of Eve, the sons of
tax collector beneath the sheets. The door swings open, floorboards creak. Now who will toast our noble host who has this moaning given up the ghost? So the second band we're covering, uh, possibly even more famous, and I'd say the one that had the biggest interaction with metal of the mm. lot, we're going to cover the seventh and final album by the band Typo Negative. I think it's the seventh album. Seventh album, yeah. Yeah. So this was released in 2007 on uh, Steamhammer Records, and it's dead again. Um, if you know anything about Typo Negative, well, if you don't know much about Typo Negative... They're kind of somewhere, like, throughout their career, this varies, but generally most of their albums have a little bit of a hardcore influence, a bit of a doom influence, kind of a goth rock influence, and then more of, like, a classic rock. Mm, their songs mm. take bits and pieces from all of those and kind of end up somewhere in the middle. Like, yeah, again, yeah. another one very much like Clutch. If you don't get on with their vocals, I don't think there's a way into this sound. Like, I, yeah. And talking of the vocals, like because they are with with Typo the most over the over the top most obvious mm. thing about them, uh, they're led by vocalist and bass player Pete Steele, who has a monumentally deep voice, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and deep singing <laughs> voice as well, like yeah, yeah, well, one of the deepest voices I can think of. There's only you know even when you listen to sort of like death metal all the time and you're used to really deep guttural growls, there's something about Pete Steele's voice that's just sort of resonant when you hear it. <laughs> Um, and he, he's actually backed up by Kenny Hickey playing guitar and doing some um, additional vocals. And he's a sort of like fantastic, almost grunge-style vocalist. He's also really great, and he, he does now lead a band in Seventh Void. But he does some additional vocals on a lot of Typo stuff, and it's an amazing counterpoint to Pete Steele's sort of like going off the bottom of the sound register style vocals. And even when he's sort of singing up high, it's still ridiculously low when you stop to think about what you're hearing for a second. Yeah, yeah. So like the core like the core of their sound and it's morphed a bit, like particularly the first two albums I think are slightly outliers because they are mm. more in the kind of hardcore kind of realm. Then you get into um Bloody Kisses, which is like if you've heard a little bit of typo, you've probably heard something off Bloody Kisses, yeah, something like Christian Woman yeah, or, or Black, Black Number, Number One. one. And, yeah. yeah. And that's kind of more of the sound. What it is is it's kind of like it's guitar and bass, guitar, bass, drums, and keyboards. The lineup's been pretty consistent. Like I think they've just changed drummer once. Yeah, um, so for this album actually, Johnny Kelly comes in to play drums on this album. Other than that, he was their live drummer for years before that, yeah, and their yeah. drum tech before that. So he's sort of been with <laughs> the band since the beginning. Yeah, but they use program drums for a lot of the in between albums. Yes, um, yeah, this is one of the 
one of the, I think it's the first album where it's actually entirely just acoustic drums. Which I do think helps the sound. Yeah. The core of their sound is this like kind of, it's, it's a technique that's not used that often, at least not in a more metallic kind of sound. I think in goth it's used quite a lot. Mm. But it's um, having all the instruments slightly distorted, but with masses of chorus on it as well, which makes this like super like rich, thick tone that's like like kind of it has a strange effect of being like slightly melancholy and happy at the same time. There, there there's so many typo riffs which you can describe as that. They're sad but also happy, and and Pete Steele's vocals, are, yeah, sort of in a true goth tradition, match this perfectly. You know, when he's doing these for him slightly higher vocals, which are still really quite deep, it's got almost a happy feeling as if you're listening to sort of you know a happy upbeat segment. But there's something sad about it. Yeah, and yeah. then they'll take you into these full on doom sections, which are really slow and heavy, and all of this sort of. It, it's still very clear. You can still hear what's going on, but it disappears into sort of like the bass and drums really locked down on these low, slow segments. And then you can get like the proper low Pete Steele vocals and some of the... Well, then you'll have these almost hardcore bits as well where things are going faster with what sound like happy punk riffs, but don't sound happy for yeah, some yeah. reason. <laughs> There's something going on there. And like the way the sound works is like everything's bass. Like the, mm, everything yes, has yeah, a yeah. huge amount of low end. And it's like... Obviously, Pete's voice, but like the bass is this huge driving sound, and, mm. and this normally doesn't happen when you distort a bass guitar. Normally, if you distort a bass guitar, it drops out the mix. You kind of like yeah. when yeah. the guitar riffs are really going, the bass guitar, the frequency you just won't hear. But because of the way they've added all this chorus, and because rather than having a second distorted guitar, they've got a keyboard which is like a different mm. frequency range, you just get this perfect wall of bass guitar and keyboard. And because of all the distortion, because of all the chorus, it's just this it's this beautiful one thing. You can rarely yeah, tell yeah. what's doing what. It's just this this big one wall of the riffs. Yeah. Oh, when you're paying attention as well, there are so many, or when you watch the live videos, there's so many of the rhythms in it where you're like, oh, right, the bass is playing that. And yeah. it's just like leading this whole section and the guitar is just sort of sitting back and doing something else. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting to see how they can switch that round and really make the bass an instrument which is right at the forefront of driving whole songs and whole segments of songs. Yeah, yeah. So we should really get into like the position Dead Again has in their catalogue. As I said, the first two albums are a bit different. I've never hugely got into them. Mm. And then you have Bloody Kisses, which is like their breakout success album, which has these absolutely excellent songs yeah. on it. It's stuff like um, the, the two we mentioned, the two classic singles are these... 10 or 12 minute long epics. Yeah, well, there's, there's songs like Frozen as well and um, Summer Breeze, which are also fantastic on there. But the problem with that album, and I, some people enjoy it, but I do hold it against it, it's has loads of tracks where they're pissing around. Yeah. They just try something really stupid to try and yeah. be amusing. And this kind of is a trend for a lot of their albums. But, like, so, so that one's really popular, and rightly so, it's got brilliant moments. Then the true kind of revered classic is October Rust that yeah. comes a bit later on which they cut down the pissing around mm, mm. the songs are more focused and tight and it gets the melancholy just right yeah, like, yeah. stuff like Death in a Family mm. like is terrifyingly sad or then you get um, Be My Druidess which is <laughs> just Pete Steele in full blown creep mode <laughs> and like his voice works so well for that because he's just a terrifying human being yeah yeah <laughs> Well, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of dark humor in Typo Negative, which varies in its style throughout their career. Um, starting off in a yeah, quite aggressive way, 
Um, uh, and like weird long song titles like Unsuccessfully Coping with the Beautiful Nature of Infidelity. <laughs> Something like that. It's one yeah. of the early ones. Um, and by the point of Dead Again, that's changed a little bit because the whole context of the band has changed. And there's like so much stuff you can read up on about, you know, Pete Seale and his life and, you know, difficulties that they've had. But at this point, it's slightly less sort of irreverent and slightly less dark humour, but it's still all there. There's still lots of, like, if you read the lyrics, there's lots of really fun little jokes that are in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, I can't remember what song it's in there, but there's one about God having given us four cheeks or something like that, <laughs> which I remember finding really funny in the context of the song because it's all really serious and you get to this bit and it's like a stupid joke about a butt thrown in, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. I really like. Yeah, like they have that nature to them where it's like, I think these songs are like serious takes on mental health in a lot of places. Mm, mm. Pete still discussing the fact like he he was never a happy individual, but he sort of captures some of that in like dark humor and like interesting metaphor and so on. They yeah. they just have a very interesting approach to lyric writing, and I think I really like this album because it's way less on the nose than some of their earlier mm. stuff. Like as as fun as a song like "We Hate Everybody" is, those lyrics <laughs> are like well and truly there. There is no room for like yeah, interpretation yeah. there. Yeah, I, I like and reading some interviews with him, he's saying that for him one of the best ways of sort of catharsis is to express his emotions through music. And songs like Dead Again, um, well, yeah, from the album itself, uh, Dead Again is specifically about, you know, going out on a binge, um, taking drugs, and the next day feeling like you're dead, basically, and that you've lost part of yourself in that process. And so for him, that's expressing what that was like, um, but in a way which is kind of interesting, and then linked it to Rasputin, because... <laughs> he was also a giant terrifying man I think at this point in his life like <laughs> Pete Steele was starting to believe he was a reincarnation of Rasputin mm. to the point where um, in the Prophet of Doom video the third track from this album they sort of grabbed a four minute clip of and stuck into a song like a kind of video he actually plays Rasputin being <laughs> being murdered by the rest of his band <laughs> which yeah I, I thought was a, an interesting take on it yeah the thing they do with this album which I really like but I can see it putting some people off it depends kind of how you feel about the structure of songs really is so previous albums like uh, October Rust they kind of condense songs down you get these great like five to six minute long songs that have a couple of movements in this, they kind of go more for these massive, sprawling epics that mm. keep changing. Like, to the point there's a 15-minute-long song on this. And a lot of these tracks... So even Tripping a Blind Man, which is only, like, seven minutes long, are, like... There's hardly any repeating sections. Like, yeah, they just yeah. keep moving. And they're often, like, two songs stuck together. Like, two songs where you've only got two repeats, and then it's stuck together to another part. Mm. Like... Um, she Burned Me Down has this amazing, like, two minute long, like, massive rocky intro. Yeah, yeah. And then descends into six minutes of, like, <laughs> sprawling doom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they managed to get that transition actually really well. And the thing that I really like about Dead Again is it's sort of a summation of typo negative. It's got every little bit that they've mm. done. You've got these really heavy, doomy bits on these three things or on. Um, she burned me down or the beginning of Prophets of Doom yeah. you've got these like hardcore thrashy bits on like some stupid tomorrow and stuff like that with all like like kind of backing chanting vocals yeah. from yeah. the rest of the band uh, who... and, and then you've got these like huge well it's like slightly cleaner sad epics like September Sun with the slow and mournful piano which builds it up into this really amazing like typo ballad style thing yeah um, so September Sun is a really interesting one because it is properly a 
rock ballad. Like, yeah. Well, well and truly for the first five minutes is a rock ballad. With like, <laughs> as you say, Josh Silver just doing like these gentle keyboard parts and then Pete doing these quite mournful vocals and then the mm. guitars come in and Kenny does his kind of higher vocals as a bit more of a like kind of powerful chorus and back yeah. to Pete doing these low vocals. Then it just goes completely off the rails halfway through. <laughs> and it just turns into, like, I think he's singing in Russian at one point. And it's like a <laughs> communist rally, complete with crowd cheering noises. Yeah, yeah. And That's the sort of thing that Typo Negative do. Like, when they cover stuff as well, they just take, like, these sort of more traditional things. And then they go, oh, yeah, and then we're going to just typo it up and make it really fucking weird. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, um, on this album and on a lot of other albums, well, it, it, they, when they pull it off it's completely spectacular yeah yeah and it's yeah it's just nothing like anything else but it is a very acquired taste like um they do a cover of highway star i can't remember what album it's on but um i actually love it but i know most people who are fond of deep purple would hate it so you've got to get into the thing that they're doing but i think when they pull it off it's absolutely great well, then they got like an eight-minute-long cover of Black Sabbath's Paranoid, where they just slowed it down to like <laughs> just the point of absolute nonsense. Yeah, it, yeah. But yeah, like there, there is a lot of that kind of thing going on in this album, like lots of just moving between multiple passages. That they, I feel, I feel the reason this album really worked is because they make these songs still flow without too many recurring elements. Like, mm. sort of maybe they're thematically similar, but they do very much like veer off in different directions. But it's not jarring. It doesn't feel yeah. like like oh, we're just changing genre now. It's like okay, no, I, I can I can follow the passage. It, of it, ca- it carries the feel of the song while changing a lot of the instrumentation. It still feels like it's part of the same sort of narrative or journey or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um. Um, yeah. There's just and the the other thing about this is it is an immensely long album. Yeah, that works. It like I think it's the best part of seventy minutes. Yeah, yeah. I think it was an hour seventeen in total, which is wow, yeah, yeah, like one of the longest they've ever put out. And it doesn't have some of these like sort of experimental jokey tracks and stuff on it. It's like it's really just sort of consistent songs about anything that's throwing anything too wild or like you know ambient noise or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, they, it is like pretty much all of it is still guitar riffs and vocals, mm. but I find it engaging for the full like yeah. hour and a bit. Yeah, which, definitely. Again, like we were saying with Clutch earlier, it's incredible to make a kind of rock influenced album with standard rock songs that is mm. engaging in that way for that long. Yeah, I, I'd say for me, it's the only type of album I really like. Start to finish, maybe the last song less so, but yeah, like even October Rust. I know it's a popular song, but I can't get my head around Green Man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I sort of know what you mean. Um, I think another thing that's nice about this is uh, really interviews with um, Jolly and Pete. For them, it's the most positive typo album they've ever made. It's like in its outlook, it's happier than all the others that have come before, which isn't saying much for typo negative. No, but, no, <laughs> but but that's still better. Um, and I find it really funny that they pretty much describe it as a straight up rock album. Which I mean, their version of straight up rock is fucking weird. <laughs> yes, yeah, but I love it. So you know, it's more straight up rock for them. But uh, yeah, that that's really worked. I guess so. There are moments of this of very traditional kind of rock songs, like Halloween and Heaven. Yeah, as silly yeah. as it is, is just a rock song structure with just a slightly odd middle eight of rather than where a normal rock song would go into the guitar solo, they have a breakdown for like a female mm. vocalist to come and do a kind of yeah, yeah, uh, like something like a really complimentary voice to everyone else's. Yeah, Halloween and Heaven, um, written about the sort of uh, passed on heroes of rock music, um, particularly Dimebag Daryl. 
who um, is not referenced in it. Yeah, because he, Pete didn't want to look like they were sort of making something out of his death because he died fairly recently. He didn't want to look like they were capitalising on that. Yeah, um, and, like, and that kind of gets into Typo's connection to Metal of... Like, their often touring buddies were the band Pantera. Like, mm, mm. So these guys are definitely in that realm of, you know, super popular metal. But I, I still, I'm not sure that they're a metal band. I, I mean, I'm up for debates over classification. It doesn't matter yeah. that much. But I mean, there's bits that I'd certainly say when I'm listening to it. Like, yeah, there's so many doomy bits on this. Like, that's just metal. Like, there's no other genre which can accurately describe how heavy this bit is. No rock band sounds at all like this. Yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah, but then there's loads of bits which aren't, like, definitely aren't metal and more hard rock. Um, so, yeah, they're one of those bands that just sort of sits around the edge of all these genres where it's not really... You don't really know what they are, but it doesn't really matter that much. I think, they, for me, the unsung hero of Typo Negative is Josh Silver, the keyboard player. He's fantastic, yeah. He, he adds a lot in what he does. But I think, he, although... Um, sort of Pete Steele is like I think more responsible for a lot of the writing Josh does most of the studio work so he oh, does okay, yeah. he does like mixing mastering production also on the album there's lots of bits that sound like interesting guitar passages mm. they're actually keyboard like there's <laughs> loads where like Kenny's guitaring is never that technical or flashy mm. and often Josh will do the slightly more flashy moments but with a keyboard tone that's so close to a kind of Kenny's strange chorus driven guitar tone but you don't know what's going on as I say it plays into that whole just wall of uh, slightly Mm. distorted sound but yeah Josh is like the real hero of just turning this into such an immensely big sounding finished product yeah managing to get that sound entirely together and I guess we mentioned earlier like the acoustic drums of this really help they do and I think yeah that's a lot of where the more traditional hard rock feel comes from for the members of the band as well it just has that more traditional drum sound rather than the more electronic, gothy sound that they've had previously. And it just gives it this drive from when it really gets going. The acoustic drums just add something to that, which I think works really well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, uh, And unfortunately, as you probably all know by now, like this was their final album. So not long after this, well, like a couple of years later, Pete Steele unfortunately died of heart failure and the band was... Yeah, just completely done at that point. Mm. For obvious reasons, they've been going as like this kind of pretty consistent four piece since forever. Yeah, yeah. And there was no point trying to resurrect it elsewhere. Um, from that, uh, Johnny and Kenny went on to form Seventh Void, who are a far more traditional kind of rock band. Yeah, definitely worth checking out though. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if you really like K- Kenny's higher vocals in this, yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's far more of that. Josh mm. Silver has unfortunately pretty much retired from music, as far as I can tell. Which yeah, I believe I believe the original drummer, whose name is escaping me at the moment, um, he went on to form a Pale Horse named Death. Oh I yeah, think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who who have some moments that I really like as well. So yeah, they're both Seven Void and Pale Horse named Death. If you like this sort of thing and want to see where the members went, go check those out. I think Johnny was briefly a live drummer for them as well. Oh okay, That's yeah, cool. <laughs> like, I could be wrong on that, but uh, yeah, yeah. So like a Pale Horse named Death for like. Far more kind of like um, death metal with like a really early Paradise Lost or an yeah, Ethmer influence, yeah. which yeah, I kind of like doing that with more modern productions. Really interesting. Mm. They're really cool bands. None of them have managed to capture the mystique of what made Typo Negative so fantastic. Um, <laughs> but then again, like Typo it's... couldn't capture it all the time. They yeah, just have yeah. these moments of genius throughout yeah. their career. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah, that's, that's probably pretty about it, unless you've got anything else to add, Rob. No, I think that's about all I've got. Cool, cool. So from this one, we're going to go for a slightly longer track, but it's just, just to give you a feel of how this album kind of goes. We're going to go for the second track, Tripping a Blind Man, which kind of showcases that every single riff going structure. Yeah, and a huge variety of different types of sound they use on this album.
Monster Magnet, who are a rock band that Phil and I are really, really into. Um, and this is their 2013 album, The Last Patrol. Now, Monster Magnet are a really interesting band. Uh, they've been around for ages now as well, um, like a lot of the bands we've been covering. Yeah, absolutely years. Uh, um, and they're mainly... Uh, so the main man in Monster Magnet is Dave Windorf, who is uh, their guitar player and vocalist, uh, frontman. Um, and they've been doing all sorts of stuff. So they've got really old, sort of psychedelic, spaced out, jammed out, weird, stone of rocky albums. And then it all goes, builds up to their really famous album, Power Trip, um, in 98, which sort of went in a more hard, rocky style direction. And I love Power Trip. It's a great album. And I've probably played it far too much. Um, <laughs> and so it's starting to like not sound right to me. And then they went sort of in this direction, um, further into more sort of straightforward rock with albums like Monolithic Baby, which then sort of, I think, got a little bit lost at some point. I've got to admit, so I would say with, with Monster Magnet, we've got probably at three distinct phases of their career. Mm. The first three albums are these kind of like fuzzed out, super psychedelic rock, lots of like kind of descents into madness in longer songs. Mm. Um like, just not massively accessible. Like, especially the first one, Spine of God, is a really hefty yeah. album. Then after that, you get Power Trip. Just, like, after their, their kind of... Their masterpiece album is probably their third album, Dopes to Infinity, mm-hmm. which just perfectly sits between the psychedelic, fuzzed-out nightmare of rock and more traditional classic rock, yeah. catchy song structures. Then Power Trip, yeah, as Rob was saying, they just shed that kind of... Um, more fuzzy end yeah. of their sound and become very clear, very catchy songs. Like I personally really enjoy Power Trip, but mm. I think a lot of people are like, that's the point where I stop listening. Yeah, yeah. Then they have this really unfortunate sort of descent with the follow-up, um, God Says No, I think the band even hates it just it just didn't quite work for whatever mm. reason. Then Monolithic Baby, which I think is just a bad album. Yeah. Like, I can't, it's just, it's just a band doing bad, like, Self-aware but not self-aware cock rock. Mm. It's just all a bit stupid. And then they have this really... Then they come into the third phase, which is a bit we're going to be talking about. Um, the first album of that, I think Dave Windorf ended up in rehab before it. 
and just got into his head he was never going to tour again. And they produced this this album called Four Way Diablo, which was the only Monster Magnet album I think with no um, no real thought about playing it live. I don't think they've mm. ever played any of the tracks live off it. Mm. And it has this structure where it's it's a lot of just throwing random ideas at the wall. It's really hit or miss. It features some of my favourite ever Monster Magnet and some of my worst ever. Like um, the track uh, uh, Freeze and Pixelate is mm-hmm. a, a kind of Western-themed instrumental. And it's incredible. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, but like they've never done anything quite mm-hmm. like that. And, and this album was a chance for them to try that. Dave recovered over the years and was like, actually, you know what, we're going to turn this back into a live project and release the excellent Mastermind, which yeah. is brilliant because it sits somewhere between the two. It's like, it structurally, it feels very much like something that would fit in between Dopes and uh, Power Trip. It's yeah, just yeah. This, this perfect middle point of like, it's not as fuzzy at, or as psychedelic, but it still has some of that, and it's, it's not too rocky. Yeah, it still has those very sort of catchy, straightforward rock structures, but then it augments that by adding these weird psychedelic ideas and different sort of musical motifs, which you wouldn't normally find in rock music. And then, yeah, I think Last Patrol shifts again a little bit more towards that psychedelic direction. Yeah, and it's yeah. got these like weird, massive, jammed out passages where it just. I mean, the Last Patrol, the song is one of my favorite. Probably the first thing I tell people about this album is the song "The Last Patrol" from "The Last Patrol" is nine minutes of pretty much the same riff, and they just jam it out for an entire nine minutes, and you're never bored. I mean, there are there are different riffs in there, but like they, they take so long on the same riff and just build it up, adding slightly different layers, new vocals, some sort of like backing vocals, new guitar leads over the top of it, some like really cool solid drum patterns holding the whole thing down, and it's just really interesting for the whole song. So the way the song kind of works, and I think it's an interesting start like start point to talk about them is. And it showcases kind of everything because the first half of it is a standard rock song. Yeah. But then as the rock song would end, it fades out and builds into this kind of like really Eastern themed riff mm. that starts off, as Rob was saying, it starts off gently and then gets more and more complex. And then something they started doing on more recent albums. I think the first example of this is like Cyclone on Four Way Diablo. Is these ending passages where they build up a riff. So you, you kind of you hear the riff quite a few times. You, I've got it in my head. I know what's yeah. going on here. And then... Like a guitar will start soloing, the yeah. bass will start doing its own kind of lead pan, the drums will be just about holding a groove, but yeah. mostly almost soloing themselves. Then the second guitar will start soloing, <laughs> and like the original riff is just being played on like one guitar buried in the background as ev- all these kind of like, yeah, these mash of clashing different bits is coming and it's and it's the way they take a really simple riff and build it up into this just like maelstrom of noise but like it's it's all like smooth and clean and it feels so effortless the way they do it and they the way they build up a, a riff that for another band would just be a good riff and they can build a riff into a pretty much a whole song this way and it's fascinating to hear them do that yeah yeah and it, it, like that was such a good kind of it's not like you've got one track in the the album that sort of leads up into it and then Last Patrol is the sort of second track and it's a huge 10 minute epic. And I think it was such a good way of structuring the album because it kind of leaves you prepared for anything at that mm. point because it's not a traditional st- structure to put the giant epic, like front load that on an yeah. album. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just think that was really interesting. Yeah. And then from that, um, another thing Monster Magnet do, and I think probably why their second album is slightly odd, is mm. they just throw in a cover like straight yeah, after yeah. that. So we get uh, Free King Fishers, which is a cover of 
Donovan, like a, a Scottish like singer-songwriter. Have you heard the original? I haven't heard the original, no. Um, the thing that I thought was really cool about the beginning of it as well, is I was aware it was a um, sort of cover, but it's it feels sort of like this weird like Eastern melody-type feel to the beginning of the so, song. So the original, um, they, that's actually like one of my biggest criticisms of this album, is I think they did the wrong thing with this cover. So okay, the original yeah, yeah. has that, like, has like a sitar over it. Yeah. And what happens, like... It's kind of like acoustic guitar, clean vocals, and bits of sitar making, like, just what you would think would be a standard, like, kind of Western rock, kind mm. of Western kind of ballady song. They're changing the scales used by having a yeah. sitar then, it just, it all doesn't sound like something you would expect. And the end to that song in the original is, like, the sitar goes more and more complex, and it, mm. it goes into a very psychedelic, uh, very 60s psychedelia yeah, kind of ending. Yeah. With with Monster Magnus version, they keep that for the first half of the song. But rather than doing like a psychedelic ending, they do a big rock guitar solo ending. You're like, ah, I, yeah. You couldn't. I, I think you should have gone weird rather than. Because yeah, I, th- I thought the intro was fantastic, and there were bits of it where I was thinking, this sounds almost like a weird little bit of Opeth in yeah. there somewhere, yeah. like with the clean vocals as well, somehow meshing with that. Um, but it's nice to have that variation on this album. Um, even if that is a cover, like the way that they've done it and the way they've executed it, at least at the beginning, is really, really cool. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we should probably get into a bit of like the background of the band. So, Monster Magnet is very much Dave Windorf, frontman's project. Mm. So, he sort of on and off um, played guitar and keyboards throughout a lot of the albums, always doing vocals live. Sometimes he has a guitar, sometimes he doesn't, depends mm. what era. But he's like... Much like sort of Dio early on in his solo career, he was writing most of the riffs. Yeah, like yeah. so, even if he's not often an important guitarist in any kind of live setting, in terms of um, recording, putting the album together, he does a huge amount of the guitar. Then we have um, uh, Bob T- Pantella on drums, uh, Philip Cavano Ke- on bass and guitar for this album. I mm. think they, they had quite a rotating lineup of basses. Yeah. Phil is one of the guys who's been in the band like the longest. Like I think he joined a bit after Power Trip. Okay, yeah. Um, and the the other massive change from this, from all their other albums, Bar Spine of God, is just before, just after Mastermind was recorded, longtime lead guitarist Ed Mundell left the band, mm. and he's replaced with uh, Garrett Sweeney. And Garrett Sweeney um, really mimics uh, Ed Mundell's style well for the old. Like for the like, I remember seeing him on tour with him, not realizing Ed had quit because oh, yeah, yeah. he was just after the Mastermind had come out, and he he did an amazing job of filling Ed's shoes. But then has his like own lead style that is a bit different to Ed's, mm. and it, it's just like really added an interesting new dynamic to the band. Oh, and for listeners who have never seen us. I kind of look like him. If you ever, <laughs> if you ever wonder what I look like, I kind of look like that guy. <laughs> that is weirdly true. Thinking back to some of the music videos that I've been watching, um, but uh, to talk about Dave Windorf a bit more as sort of a vocalist, he, like a lot of the other vocalists we talked about, has an incredible personality to him. Um, there's no, no one who sounds quite like him, which again is based on his delivery as well as the lyrics that he writes and the things that he does. And he he's got a significant range for a singer who's you know not the most talented singer in the world. He's just a really decent rock singer, but he can go from sounding like quite vulnerable on "I Live Behind the Clouds" right at the beginning of the album and softer to like I mean sort of Dave Windorf's signature, sort of macho and sleazy on "Hallelujah." 
and he can he has a fantastic screen that you can pull out when he wants to as well uh, yeah, which, yeah. he does less these days he used to do it a lot on the earlier albums oh, but there is a few moments actually there's a couple in here yeah he, he does occasionally to fade out because he'll do much like I think we were talking about with with Clutch if he's slightly putting that scratchiness in his mm, voice mm. Dave does a huge amount and we'll do these like massive drawn out like really like throat shredding yeah. style like <laughs> ho- holding a note while like yeah it's it, it's hard to describe and it sounds like it must trash his yeah voice. yeah it sounds painful to listen to but it's an amazing noise yeah again much like we said with the previous two you're gonna get into this band if you like his voice mm. and if you don't probably not I feel I've forgiven a lot of their kind of missteps over the career because I just quite like his singing yeah like yeah. I, I can kind of just hearing a rock song with him on, I'm like, oh, this is cool. I'm up yeah, for this. I'm, I'm pretty similar, really. Yeah, it's yeah. Some of these vocalists are just a bit polarizing, but I think you know they're doing things that are different, um, mm. different to your sort of standard rock outfit, and I really like that. And I think Dave Windorf's style is really great. And again, uh, similarly to Neil Fallon, he has a nice uh, sort of lyric writing flourish, which is mm. a bit different to a lot of um, other writers. Like he he kind of does these songs about life and love and relationships, like most rock bands do, but often will throw in like comic book references. He yeah. loves <laughs> he loves getting comic book references. Well, um, like, what's the name of the character in Deadpool? Um, Megasonic Teenage Warhead is named after a uh, named after actually a Monster Magnet song. Um, it's that way round. Oh, cool. Because Dave Windle's a big fan of comics. I think it was Grant Morrison who then named a character in one of the X-Men comics after a Monster Magnet song. <laughs> and now in the new... When I, I went to watch Deadpool when it came out, and I was like, why is the character named after a Monster Magnet song? Because I wasn't up to date on my comics. And then looked it up, I was like, oh, that's really cool. <laughs> they genuinely are named after a Monster Magnet I, song. I, lo- I love that a, like, a little kid uh, who was so influenced by comics has gone on to... Kind yeah, of, to, to, yeah. <laughs> complete. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really interesting. The other thing I really like is a lot of the earlier Monster Magnet stuff, like especially that middle period, there was a lot about, like him, you know, doing the classic, like, rock star thing of, like, going on about how much sex he has mm. and all this kind of stuff. Whereas, at this point, like, Dave Windorf's a single man, and he's still on the pull and so on, but has realised he's, like, a bit of a creep these days and actually references on his lyrics. Like, mm. now his lyrics about him flirting <laughs> are far more portraying him as just a weird old man yeah. who's slapped on the pool. Which yeah. I, I, I like that he's sensibly grown up with this idea mm, like he's mm. he's no longer kind of this big sex symbol rock star yeah yeah that that self-awareness stops you being put off by any of that stuff because when you look into it and you read lyrics you're like no nah, there's there's a knowledge of how this comes across which is really nice to see yeah i think like particularly you get that in like hallelujah and paradise yeah yeah because as we get more into the album you get again get a nice kind of um after some different ideas being thrown in the start there's kind of a nod to their the fans of the more rock era, and you mm. get a couple of more traditional rock songs like Paradise. I think is uh, like masterpiece of simplicity. Mm. In the the opening riff is one guitar playing like just a pattern that's just like two notes. And then the bass comes in with just this simple, t- really simple little pattern, but it makes me feel an emotion. There's yeah. something about it. It's like <laughs> you've nailed something there. It's like there's scarcely anything happening here. Yeah, yeah, but. It's made me feel kind of melancholy. Like <laughs> I, I, I don't know how you do that, but Monster Magnet have seemingly like been very good at this, often using bass, like really utilizing bass to inject like 
a slightly different emotion into a mm. song, right? Mm. Often in their mellower moments. And then you get, like, come to mind this ones, which is just balls to the wall rock epic. Yeah, your more straightforward rock songs, which really appeal to that sort of people who really love Power Trip and stuff like that. But kind of similar to Dead Again, I really like that this takes lots of elements from throughout their career and all shoves it together into one package, which, again, while being a pretty long album, is actually really consistent. Yeah, you know, yeah. There, there aren't really any songs I'd pick out on here that I'd say I didn't enjoy. Yeah, the only one I feel that's a bit weak is Hallelujah is a bit stupid. If I was going to skip one, like Hallelujah is probably one of the weaker ones. Yeah, I really, I really like it. Um... Yeah, no, I think I, I, I do actually really like that. Fair enough, fair enough. I, I think for me, like the real, um, the other real standout of the album is towards the end, you get the track End of Time. Yeah, which, a fantastic one. Very much like Last Patrol, starts off as a more traditional rock song, but rather than going off into like crazy psychedelia, it has this brilliant, like three minute melodic fade out mm. that actually talking to the screams. Just before it goes into it, he does this amazing, <laughs> like, growled yell and then like the music kind of mm. yeah peters out around that and then comes back in with this more melodic bit and it's like that was just such a perfect transition and kind of similar to what we talked about with Clutch as well in End of Time there's these sort of like relatively simplistic riffs but then they're just sort of accented a little bit with these like slightly exotic sounding leads which are never too huge or too complex or too showy but they just give it that extra little texture to it which just makes the song sound bigger and more complete. Yeah, the solos for this band, and they kind of always have been this way, have a real 60s rock feel to them. Yeah, There's yeah. no technique. There, there isn't techniques in the guitar playing <laughs> that came about after the 80s. Yeah. Like, everything in these really classic rock solos, you know, far more Gary Moore feel than mm, Eddie, mm. Um, like Eddie Van Halen or something. And it's it's it really works for this sound. There's something... Very nostalgic, very 60s influence about it. And I think a big part of that is it's mainly written by Dave, and Dave doesn't listen to new music. Like, he he's very much still just listening to all the stuff he loved as a teenager. And yeah, I think with the like fantastic production on this album, it still sounds really modern. It sounds like a modern version of some of those ideas that were around much earlier in music, which helps it not just sound like it's a throwback. It still stands on its own sort of two feet. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it doesn't feel like it's just wallowing in nostalgia. It's still saying something that's different to the bands back then and different to the bands now. Yeah, and, and what, like, I love this album is so done in houses. Is, is, like, after God Says No, they hated the way that album sounds because mm. they got professionals in to mix it and they didn't like it. So since then, Dave and uh, Phil, like, they produced this album. They, they basically choose every element. They're able to mm. make this sound like what they want it to sound like. And the amount of thought that's gone into that is brilliant. I, yeah. Like these are a band that do have a big budget to play around with. Like so, they yeah they can get away with doing that more, but they make use yeah. of it, and it's great. But and again, um, just to mention the drumming as well. It's probably the most, I guess. Well, a lot of the bits are simplistic, but the drumming is one of the things that really sits there, holding this whole thing together. Particularly when it starts to jam out, it the, the drumming will sort of go off into these weird areas, but it will be the one thing which is generally sticking to that original guitar riff and holding the whole thing together. Yeah, yeah, um, and it helps so much to not get lost in some of these spaced out sections. It gives you that bit you can hold on to and remember what the sort of main hook is. Mm. But also the thing I draw with this compared to Mastermind is the drum sound of this is just quite a lot better. It just it sounds is, a yeah. lot weightier and more powerful, and it really helps. 
lead it, whereas it just... I mean, the Mastermind drum sound's not too bad. Like, it's pretty good. It just doesn't have the force that it does on this, and I think that really helps it sound just a bit a bit more driving for all of the songs. I think uh, with Mastermind, it's an album I've forgiven a lot of flaws of because... It was the first time since I got into Master, uh, to Monster Magnet they released something new and I'd gone, oh, this is actually a good product mm. again. Like, because a lot of their previous albums, like Forward Diablo, I enjoy, but it's it's like six good tracks and six terrible tracks. Yeah, like, yeah. it really has. And Sunny Game Mastermind being like, oh, this is a complete package. This feels like a real thing. And they could translate his songs live and they mm. were as big a live highlights as, yeah. as hearing Space Lord. Like, it, <laughs> like, I'm really looking forward to seeing Monster Man again to see some of Last Patrol live because mm. I've never caught them live doing this, like, doing the yeah. newest album. I'd still definitely go and check out Master Man as well. I, I think it's a fantastic album. Oh, yeah. It's got, just like some of the songs like Mindless Ones and uh, Duke of Supernation on this, it's got some incredible like just really catchy songs they have this talent of writing really simple really catchy stuff which as you were saying like with weird little very simple things on the bass can completely change how you're feeling within the song yeah yeah um, it's also got a complete song on it it's uh, is it the titan who cried titan who cried like a baby yeah and it's just got this it's a just a series of guitar effects i believe so yeah he, like i've seen because i've seen them perform this live dave windorf runs a guitar through a series of pedals and mm. i don't know what he's doing but he makes this really um, odd, like almost synth yeah, sounding track. Yeah, it's like wall of synth type thing, and it's this really sort of like apocalyptic, melancholic song. It's really good. Yeah, um, yeah, I think a real highlight of their stuff. Like, mm. yeah, um, I'm a huge fan of. I like he said it's one of his favorite tracks he's ever written, mm. and I do think it really works well. But it's a, much like Freeze and Pixelate. It's completely removed from the rest <laughs> of their sound. Weird, yeah. Something else I'd like to get into before we finish on these guys is. They've done two albums following this, which mm. are reimaginings of Mastermind and Last Patrol, where they've taken every song and just gone, let's do this completely yeah. differently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, let's try like doing mindless ones, but we make it a 60s rock song. Yeah, Rather yeah. than being like a modern hard rock, they've like put um, like Hammond organs and stuff over it. <laughs> or like reimagined Last Patrol as like a two-minute instrumental yeah, and so yeah, on. Yeah. It, and like the idea is massively self-indulgent. Yeah. I, I, I get that, but and it, not every song works, but a few of them are really good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've given a couple of listens to this and um, the Milking the Stars, which is the version of Last Patrol, and Cobras and Fire, which is the alternate version of Mastermind. And that, like, they play around with some really interesting ideas and there's quite a lot of stuff that works quite well. And when you know these songs well, it's really interesting to hear you know, it's like it's really interesting to hear a really different cover of something, mm. but then you realise it's the same band who've just decided to fuck around with their own songs, and there's something really nice about that, despite how self-indulgent it might be. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, again, it, this is just a sign of, like, a band who do have a budget to throw at doing interesting mm. ideas, um, and, you know, taking advantage and trying stuff that other people don't really get the opportunity to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm probably unforgiving it a lot more because it actually works. Yeah, like, yeah, if, so. if it was dreadful, I'd probably pull them apart for it. Yeah, so yeah. The, the other thing is, um, they're finally, because this was 2013 on Napalm Records, absolute age ago, mm. they finally have a new single out for a new album. Have you heard it yet? I haven't heard the new one, no. I don't like it. Oh, right. <laughs> it's, it, it's a song called Mindfucker, which is two similar titles to Mindless Ones. Yeah. And it very much sounds like them trying that and not oh, quite right. nailing it as okay. well. I'm going to do like 
open mind until the album comes out, but the single didn't grab yeah. me, which I'm slightly <laughs> concerned about. Yeah. They seem to be going more in a like back to the, the classic rock direction. Mm, it's like, oh, mm. keep I really like the psychedelic the sound. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah. this album was a bit of a difficult one to choose from because the two best tracks on it are way too long. Yes. Um Ford just will give you the intro of the album. Uh, this is I Live Behind the Clouds. Uh, just to point out as well, uh, this is what... I mean, a lot of the albums today we're talking about fantastic covers, but this album has an amazing cover mm. of like a Minotaur or Bull in Space. Um, I think the Minotaur's the there, Eddie. <laughs> yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's fantastic. You've got to go check it out. It, yeah, absolutely beautiful piece of art. Mm. Another problem with the new album, the newer cover doesn't look anywhere near oh, as good as this shame. one. <laughs>
So the final band we're covering are quite a bit of a departure from the rest, just purely because they don't come from this like huge legacy. All those, all those other groups, we you know had hundreds of albums under their belt. Mm. Band we're covering now, we're going to look at the second and final album. This is um, 2006's Thousandfold Epicenter by The Devil's Blood. Sorry, 2011's Thousandfold Epicenter yeah. by uh, The Devil's Blood. So The Devil's Blood uh, were formed in 2006 and kind of had a reasonable amount of critical acclaim with their first EP, Come Reap, which was like, I think when that came out, it was around the time I got into them. And very much like a lot of the bands we were talking about earlier, there's a huge amount of sort of throwback in their sound. Mm-hmm. Um, so the band was formed um, by Selim Lamochi, um, who basically wanted to do something just using his brilliant grasp of melodic lead playing mm. and recruited in his sister who has pretty much done nothing else in music since um on vocals but like just this fantastic rock singer yeah who just are completely underused and goes by the uh, stage title the mouth of satan yes, i've got that down as well yeah it is incredible <laughs> and then there's a huge like slew of musicians who get in, got involved mm. for this um the real thing behind devil's blood they are like kind of 60s psychedelic rock mixed with you know kind of slight nods towards black metal and other mm. other genres led by a powerful female vocalist with these massive guitar leads mm. and they are all about and really seriously into satanical ritual oh, magic I, I, I was going to say the one thing used to sum up would be satan yeah. <laughs> to go yeah. down a sort of girl type route uh, but yeah, they've got this sort of like psychedelic occult rock type feel. Um, and there's sort of moments where you feel you've got the spirit of Black Sabbath in there, but just with some progressive psychedelic rock weirdness added on to it to make this sort of mosaic of all those influences. I feel they very much fit into that kind of explosion of that sort of occult-leaning psychedelic rock that happened like around 2010, where yeah. you had like In Solitude, uh, Blood Ceremony, The Oath, like... Eventually got to things like Ghost, which everyone jumped on top of. And then... Yeah, yeah, actually, I guess Ghost are very, very yeah. tied to that. I kind of, yeah, God, how are they the one that got I, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Because actually, we'll get into this at some point, but The Devil's Blood, much like Ghost, had an amazing stage presence. Like, mm. the way mm. they set up their stage is truly unique and was, like, really something to behold live. Um, but yeah, so there was this this big burst of this, and... I think the reason Devil's Blood got a bit of attention around that time 
was because they were very much picked up by Eric from Wattain. Well, they're, they're named after a Wattain song. They are, uh, yeah. And Salim is friends with Eric, so... Uh, and actually yeah. he's contributed uh, to a lot of Wattain stuff. Oh, cool. He, um, you know, do you know the Wattain song, Waters of Ain? Yeah. But yeah, the yeah. massive epic. Yeah, he yeah. does that huge, ludicrous guitar solo at the end. Oh, that's it, really cool. I think on that album particularly, he plays a lot of the lead guitar because mm. he's a brilliant lead guitarist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so this album is like much like the others we're talking about as well. Massively long, but no <laughs> wasted space. Yeah, best part of eighty minutes, but it works. Mm, like, mm. Um, and the way the songs are structured, there's a lot. There's always a lot of elements in there. The band, for live purposes, and I think this is all just part of the ritual, have three lead guitarists and a bass player, <laughs> so they have a symmetry on stage. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. But So the songs, are often you've got three guitar parts, you've often got additional organs, mm. or other kind of effects layered over the top of things. Um, and like, yeah, just loads of, like, hammered organ and piano over. Yeah. So you just have this massive wall with, like, just different lead melodies. Like, there's a lot to unpick in any given it, it song. It really feels like a mosaic when you listen to it, like sort of some of the psychedelic stuff from the 60s. There's so many things going on which sort of interact with each other and weave around each other. And they never really create any dissonance, although there's, there's one moment on the album which almost sounds like it's Fantafaxaf. <laughs> um, but, like, most of it's just, like, these sort of, like, kind of beautiful weaving passages around each other. Um, of these guitars and these organs, and then you'll get switching to acoustic guitar parts as well. Uh, he's a fantastic acoustic player in addition to that. Yeah. yeah. There's something about it to me which really sounds organic about it, sounds almost as if it's live and being played to you. It doesn't feel like it's coming sort of through a studio. Yeah, yeah, though, it really, it, again, they're another band who have definitely set their sound up to reproduce this live. Like, mm. this really felt like music was meant to be heard live and it has a very natural organic feel to yeah, it yeah. apparently the band like all use real vintage like 60s valve amps and stuff like i can imagine that yeah, friends yeah. of ours supported them once and said it was a nightmare because they had to bring entirely their own equipment <laughs> but like, in front to go on first because oh, yeah, yeah. they weren't allowed to touch the extremely expensive antiques behind them <laughs> which is yeah quite quite reasonably yeah. so but it, but it gives them that almost sort of lost in time sound to them because mm. they are using that genuine equipment it doesn't sound like bands who use modern equipment there's just enough little differences which you can't quite pick out but it gives it that again almost slightly nostalgic feel to a lot of the stuff oh yeah totally and i think again they played into that, that big movement of stuff that's um harking back to that era like mm. they were they were ahead of the curve of this because you hear bands now that are doing quite well like uh, uncle acid and the deadbeats or yeah, blue pills yeah. where it's like Devil's Blood were in there first, <laughs> doing the same thing. I, and I do, I, I don't know why, maybe it's just something about their style appeals to me, but I do think these guys nailed it, especially on this mm. album, better than pretty much anyone so. I've heard. They, like, their lyrical themes are all very based in ritual magic and so on. Mm. And I think it really helps that they are, like, uh, selling themselves and actively practices ritual magic. Mm. Um, and this, just the fact that the lyrics are really real kind of works. Like, if you compare it to, say, Blood Ceremony, where they sing about occult stuff, but it's all kind of a joke. Yeah, and it, yeah. And I don't know why, like, one works better than the other, but I feel there's, there's just a bit more 
of a weight to these lyrics. Mm, mm. Yeah, and reading interviews with him talking about you know his experiences with alcohol, drugs, and depression, and how this for him is this spiritual expression, sort of like what we talked about with typo negative. It yeah, it feels really genuine, and I think that comes across even when you don't know that backstory to it. There's something super genuine about both the lyrics and the music which just feeds its way into your brain without you really knowing why. Yeah, no, no, completely. And the other thing I like, and it, it's a very, um, like, interesting thing, and I think it's, it's completely accidental, but it's kind of brilliant, is a lot of the lyrics have a very, like, sort of sexual nature to them, mm. which is, like, obviously very similar to a lot of 60s rock. Yeah. But because it's all built into these amazing like tales about Satan and so yeah. on, but it, it kind of, it's almost reversing the power. Like the mm. dynamics of a lot of these songs are like these kind of um, revered female figures that, that people are, are trying to impress these kind of like demonic entities. Mm. I mean, there's something about that I just found really nicely turning a trope on its yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, just undermines that common thing which you can just get really bored of because it's everywhere if you go to listen to certain styles of music. Yeah, oh and, God. Like, yeah, and it's it's the absence of being put off by it and then realising, oh no, there's a, there's a real self-awareness to that. Which, yeah, more thought has been put into this, which is nice to see. I can't remember the name of it as a Diamond Head song that is a brilliant song, but the, yeah. the singer is just like basically talking about getting a blowjob <laughs> over the top of it and it... it, it completely ruined the song forever for me. You can't take that fucking seriously. Whereas this, I feel, like, yeah, deals with stuff very differently. But then there's there's far more ritual elements. It's it's just a really Mm. beautifully complete package to the point where the album ends in this 15-minute long instrumental, Fever Dance. If you get the vinyl version of the album, there is a booklet of a ritual to perform along with this song. (laughs) Fantastic. We're like... The song in itself, I find, isn't particularly great. I often turn the album off before that. I mean, you're already 60 minutes in at that yeah, stage. Yeah. Like, uh, like another 15-minute instrumental isn't always there. But I feel if you have that element of like performing the ritual with it, yeah. it is, is a perfect reason to include this. Yeah, it's, it's a really complete package by people who are totally into this. And you know, that's what I want to hear. Yeah, like there's they so much... Um, this band completely nailed on this album. The album cover is oh. and booklet is a work of art. Mm. It's this completely maddening image of like a kind of very traditional Satan-like figure emerging from a portal, pushing apart two pillars, and then yeah. around him there's like all sorts of imagery of snakes and yeah, twisting in, smoke in the most yeah fantastic sort of psychedelic colours you can imagine. It's it's awesome. And then the whole lyric book is filled with this artwork. Yeah, it, it's pretty much impossible to read the lyrics in it, but it's a joy to little flick through it beforehand. You don't really need it because nah. the singer's voice is so so clear. I think yeah. like you because that's the other side of it. Like with that kind of rock style, you really hear the lyrics. Mm. I find this genre lyrics need to be at least semi-decent, or I can't get past it. That's the thing, we're not talking about death metal anymore, so we can't just say, well, whatever the lyrics were, like, if you, <laughs> if you happen to have read the lyric book, you might see that it's actually quite good. Yeah, it's like, I have no idea what Spectral Voices lyrics are. No, I couldn't no. get a single word from any of those songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas all these bands we covered today, you get all of them, so you, the lyrics yeah, need I, to be of a level of quality. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of an extra pressure because lyrics in you know in more metal bands, we, it's harder to understand. Can add that little like extra thing on it, which really makes it fantastic. But here, it's got to not be bad because if it's bad, then it's really going to put you off what is otherwise a great song. 
Yeah, totally. I think with the Structures album as well, it's an album I really like to show people who know nothing about the band. Mm. You just tell them they're called The Devil's Blood, the name gives nothing away. That could be any <laughs> yeah, genre. Yeah, yeah, really could. And it builds up in such a way, the first track, the two-minute opener, unending singularity, is this very gradual build, very starts off in absolute silence mm. and slowly fades into a noise of this really sinister keyboard yeah, yeah. and little bits of like guitar just adding to this sinister atmosphere. And then finally it like hits its peak like of volume and the the epic on the wings of Gloria comes in. And what happens is as it builds up to like this really terrifying like, yeah, satanic yeah. noise, suddenly the most kind of groovy classic <laughs> rock riff comes in. It's just like yeah, yeah. you're like, oh no, I did not see it, that coming. It starts off so tense and you're like, it's called the devil's blood, oh, it's gonna be black metal or something, isn't it? And then it just starts. You're like, oh no, this is pretty cool rock. And you're like, yeah, I really like the way that they did that. Yeah, yeah. I found the wing on the Wings of Glory has a really interesting thing as well. This Sullum and the other guitarists, like I'm not sure quite who's in charge of the writing throughout it, like he seems to collaborate with a lot of people over the years. Um do a lot of fun things with Lee Guitar. In this, I guarantee I, like I, I can't see another way of putting it, but they do like a classic rock equivalent of the Slayer random noise solo. <laughs> yeah. Where you'll get like at one point like like these quick little leads between the choruses. Um which, like, they'll layer two or three different solos over each yeah, other. Yeah. These quick yes. little shreds. And you can't really tell what anything happened. Yeah, You're like, oh, yeah. that sounded flashy, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, it's sort of like a nice noise, not the Slayer sort of wall of distortion that you get, which obviously fits that type of music really well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah you don't see the equivalent of that in many other genres. The other thing that I really liked about this track is it's seven minutes long, so it has like a kind of normal traditional structure and then builds up into a, an extra passage at the end. And the extra passage at the end is this really groovy, catchy riff, completely led by the bass. Mm. But the bass really cuts through on an album with three guitarists. Like the thing they get right throughout this album is the bass is so prominent and driving. Mm. Mm. The bass and drums have this great, just like pace and drive to them. Like they're never technical, they're never complex, but they brilliantly push everything forward yeah, yeah. and then all the guitars are just texture yeah like, yeah yeah it really feels like this multi-textured album because you've got all these different guitars doing these different passages and then you've got bits we've got the acoustic guitars as well which is just a slightly different texture which adds into it they do something i really love when bands can nail this and i imagine it's massively hard to do like mm. good examples of stuff like alshavir liston or like earlier opeth where they merge acoustic guitars into distorted rock guitars, yeah, yeah. layer them perfectly, and let one come through when needed. And it just it gives a texture you're not used to because mm, mm. you well, well because you can't do it live. I think yeah. is a major reason, but it really works in certain places on this album. And actually, live they do recreate it by slightly changing, um, just just recreating on an electric guitar the acoustic sound oh yeah, yeah but particularly say like thousandfold epicenter the uh like a kind of the midpoint of the album has this like three minute build-up where it's like yeah cool like organ with acoustic guitar over it but then like electric guitar <laughs> kind of comes in and just makes it more sinister and like mm. has this just incredible build and and all the guitar sounds like the solos are mostly so fluid as well mm. um, a thing that i yeah, thought a lot when i listened to things like opeth you can really hear it in here just such fluid moving solos which never feel like static or cut off or anything like that and it just adds to this yeah, just sort of narrative the whole album has of sort of like a gradual ritual. Yeah, yeah. And you've got the really intense guitar earlier on, but say at the start of uh, track six, She, 
there's just this beautiful mm. little lead, really, really memorable passage. Like yeah. a lot of the guitaring later in the album, you can really hear, like hear and remember, like like with uh, like a maiden solo, that mm. kind of. You could hum along with it, which, which is quite something to like. When I think about it, I can remember specific guitar passages. Considering how many guitar passages there are over this like seventy-five minutes, the fact you can remember small melodic sections of it is a real testament to writing ability. So I think we should get into the fact the album goes like it takes a really interesting choice towards the end, where after a thousandfold episode, you get fire burning, which is another kind of big chorus rock song, like mm. most of the tracks this album. Then we get to uh, Everlasting Saturnalia, which is this super, super mellow track where it's like it's really, really gentle keyboard and like a tiny bit of guitar with um, the mouth of Satan just doing these like almost imperceptible, like mm. like near whispered vocals over it. And it, it just has quite a dark tone and it slowly builds up into the track, The, uh, the Madness of Serpents, which... Like the riffs sound like that title. I don't know yeah, how they did yeah, it. There's, yeah. uh, there's <laughs> lots of like quickly going up and descending of scales that has this kind of yeah. maddening spinning sensation. That's why it was it. so weird to go back into this after we'd sort of been doing Fantafaxaf for the end of year show. And I was like, I mean, these are completely different styles of bands, but I can see they're doing a similar <laughs> thing. We're just going up and down these scales in a way that you aren't used to, just is unsettling. Yeah, there's something about it that just gives this really difficult to comprehend sound and yeah like mm. that was a really good way of justifying this runtime so I think yeah. if you'd got past track 8 and gone oh we're just going to do another two rock songs it might have got tired yeah. but it throws a weird curveball at you and makes everything feel far more sinister <laughs> I, I, I just want to read this because this is like the best of Wikipedia mm. but I found this quote um SL has stated that his pl- primary influence in songwriting and in life is the pre- three principles of adversity, the death, the chaos, and the Satan, stating that Satan is a driving force behind all his creative power. SL also cites Slash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so good. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, in terms of their catalogue, like we should probably get into a bit about like the kind of history of this band. Their debut EP, Come Reap, is incredible. Really mm. brilliant, tight five tracks. The follow-up album, The Time of No Time Evermore, didn't quite hit it. I don't know why. Uh, there's something just not quite right about the sound mm. of it. So when this came out, it was like proper make or break. Can they can they improve on their, their debut? Or yeah. will they forever be a machine head who have never topped that first yeah, release? Get, get, or can they take yeah that demonstration of intent on the EP and turn that into a full length? sort of? And, and I think they really, really nailed that here. Mm, mm. The, the sad thing is, not, well, I think it's two years afterwards, um, uh, Salem, who had been battling severe depression, and like a kind of very unique style of depression from the way he describes it in interviews, mm. He'd been institutionalised for two years. Like, he was a rock guitarist, was institutionalised for two years because he just just unable to deal with reality and sort of found satanic ritual magic yeah. and was able to come back out, get over this, finally pick up his guitar again after taking mm. a long time mm. away from it and create something truly brilliant here. But unfortunately, he just seemed to... He was never happy. He was yeah. he had drive because he was creating great art, creating stuff he was proud of. But yes, uh, sadly, took his own life about two years after this album, which, yeah, incredible loss for the metal world because he yeah, was essentially yeah. at a point where 
he'd just been discovered. There was so much more he could be doing. Like yeah, and and, and as we were saying, worked with Wattain and loads of other cool bands. Like yeah, could have added his talents to all sorts of stuff and kept producing amazing music. And I don't know if you um, caught this in your research, but there's an amazing little 15-minute short film I found on YouTube of a guy interviewing his uh, sister, uh, the vocalist, and mother afterwards. I haven't uh, who, um They're sort of talking about how, like, their their life with him and reaction to this. And mm. a really interesting thing of he sort of approached them, telling them he was going to kill himself. And his mum has this, this bit where she's sort of saying, like, well, we knew if we stopped him he's going to do it anyway so we kind of accepted the facts and just discussed it with him and it's this incredibly powerful and yeah, like quite yeah. upsetting like dark thing like I think his dad before him had killed himself because he had a similar just like depression kind of thing going on since birth they both mm. both were kind of really troubled individuals but it's just a very interesting take on it like and yeah yeah the, i can't remember the name of the video but it'd be like the first mm. thing you if you search for devil's blood it's one of the first things that comes up on youtube it's really really worth a look but super powerful yeah. um following that um they released a kind of attempt at a third album uh, that was kind of like I think it's thrown together from demos and stuff. Yeah, and it sounds like it. Unfortunately, oh, okay. it's, it, yeah, yeah. it's like honestly with this band, by Come Reap, by Thousandfold Epicenter, that's probably the whole thing. The other part I want to talk about is I was lucky enough. I, Rob, unfortunately, probably has only just heard of them recently, yeah, but yeah. I was lucky enough to catch them live in about 2010 oh, awesome. at Hellfest. Yeah. And I wanted to get into this. You've seen some live videos. Like, yeah, yeah. Their stage show was something incredible. So yeah, they had this yeah, back line of old school amplifiers absolutely covered in candles. Yeah. Like, I remember <laughs> being near the front and just being properly warm. Like, <laughs> like, and then you've got the band with the singer, singer stood dead center stage and bassist and guitarist one side, two guitarists on the other. Mm. And it's this complete kind of... There's something about that that just had this spectacular shape to it. Yeah, this perfect <laughs> symmetry, yeah. All covered head to toe in goat's blood. <laughs> yep, yep, and well. <laughs> and it is just, like, it was just, while playing these hugely interesting, like, and watching them live, quite complex interlocking melodies and I so think on. There's something even more sinister about people playing songs like The Devil's Blood, which are actually catchy and kind of nice, covered in devil, covered in goat's blood, rather than playing black metal. Because it's black metal, you're sort of like, yeah, okay, you're, you're doing extreme things and you're covered in blood. Yeah, fair enough. If it's this, it's like, why are you covered in blood? <laughs> you're just singing catchy rock songs. What's going on here? Because I saw them and Wattain in the same weekend, and mm. I've got to admit, and it might have just been because it was so late and nice at that point, yeah. but... I, they, there was something truly entrancing about um, the Devil's Blood that I just yeah it, yeah it's a live show I've never seen anything quite like it mm. and it's that thing where it's like eternally disappointing that it was um, ghosts that kind of yeah, took off yeah. the great fame in the genre yeah I think yeah now on if anyone sort of talks to me about how much they love ghosts <laughs> I'm gonna have to point them to this and say look just listen to this I, mean, I think there's a lot of like blood ceremony equally like truly brilliant bands mm. who sort of slipped under the radar a bit. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. But yeah, like, these were just, they were such an interesting product and I think it's, like, to some extent I think it's why Salem killed himself because he's like, he did realise he'd made something near perfect with this and like, mm. truly produced it and, and got to tour it as well. Like, I saw a tour there on it. <laughs> truly bizarre. They yeah. were, 
They were on tour. The headline was Behemoth, Watain, <laughs> Them, and In Solitude. Which is just... <laughs> That's such a weird mix. It, it's like that kind of thing of like, this tour is not about the music being the same. It's about the ide- ideology yeah, and mentality yeah. towards music. Like, they, like, I think him and Eric really locked in on about their ideas of... The, yeah, yeah, the kind of ritual of creating which, art. Which, yeah, it is really cool in a way. Like, I like the idea that someone who has the same sort of ideology and happens to get that music goes along, you'd have a fantastic show of a huge amount of variation. Like, I mean, I, I'd love to see that show. That'd be great. Although, yeah, I risk that someone who really loves Bayamoff might not like The Devil's <laughs> Blood. <laughs> or get, in Solitude. Yeah, I might matter. get really confused for the first half of the show. Yeah, because I think Behemoth are the outlier of they're not part of that circle of yeah. friends. Yeah, yeah. Well, not Swedish, actually. Like, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, like so. So the the thing is, I really love revisiting this because it's it's such a microcosm of like a tiny a tiny portion of history with this band. They weren't mm. around for long. They didn't do all that much. But what they did was special. It was original. Yeah, yeah. And I think it kicked off a wave of really interesting stuff that followed it. Yeah, part of something which from Ghost and stuff went on to be proper metal mainstream, and you know, all Metal Hammer and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it sort of started with this. Yeah, yeah, completely. But yeah, so that, that's where I'll leave it with that. But like, of all the albums we listened to today, I think this was the one where I was like, I was really excited to keep putting this one on. Possibly yeah, because I played the others to death. But. Yeah. Well, this is the one that's new to me for the podcast. I hadn't um, caught The Devil's Blood before. Um, and it's been amazing to get into this and probably listen to it. Uh, and it's great because doing research for this episode, my flatmates haven't hated me because I've been <laughs> playing things that are actually quite catchy rather than just like listening to 20 death metal albums in the kitchen. It's like, yeah, I don't think Primitive Man's entry level. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so um, yeah, like uh, we'll probably leave it at that just to do the usual uh, plugs like, if you want to get in touch, like, I started a thread about it on Facebook, but, like, we'd love to hear more of this. Let us know your favourite, like, non-metal acts that still appeal to you as metalheads. Yeah, like, Because yeah. there's loads of great stuff like this that, I mean, Typo maybe are a metal one, but the rest, yeah. like, really brilliant, but just totally not in our usual genre. Yeah, and I guess, like, outside of rock as well, like, if there are other things I've mentioned, I don't think we'll ever cover these because I have no idea how to review them, but weird, like, dark jazz bands like um, Kilimanjaro Dark Jazz Ensemble and the Mount Fuji Doom Jazz thing, whatever their name is, um, <laughs> Boron and the Club de Gore, really cool bands who are completely not metal and I don't understand how I would ever talk about their music. Yeah, I think me and Rob are really struggle with anything that's not guitar driven, like, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. I, I, I just don't know what to say, yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you have a favourite, an album that's fantastic that's completely outside of this, let us know because that'd be really cool to check out. Yeah, so contact us on Facebook at Phil's Breakfast Metal, on Twitter at Breakfast Metal, or get in touch via Gmail at Phil's Breakfast Metal. Um, at gmail.com um, talking of getting on touch with Twitter we uh, we had a really great series of emails from a listener Ben who yeah. introduced me and Rob to the avant-garde music label yeah. which we will definitely be covering at some point yeah definitely so um, I can't quite pronounce them Progene Teras yeah, 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 really cool, sort of like atmospheric happy black metal, uh, like Ita- Italian sci fi metal, yeah, but yeah, way better than that sounds then, like it'd then, be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, when I first listened to it, um, I was like, guys, this has got like a sort of Devin Townsend vibe, like early Ocean Machine days, and I was like, and it builds up. They've got two albums, I've been listening to them a lot, and I love them, and they mix it with some electronic and like almost dubstep in bits, and I actually really love it, yeah, um, yeah. The Howling Void are a really cool sort of primordial. I'd say you like imagine thing. imagine a kind of like more condensed primordial riffs with Catatonia's vocalist. Yeah, so, yeah, somewhere around there. So it's got this really 
sort of mournful sound to it. It's, and a one-man project, probably mm, spectacular. Mm. And then you've got stuff like current Doom favourites, Nort, who... Yeah, yeah. Very interesting, very bleak Yeah, music. there's a bunch of great stuff. It's, yeah, go and check that out, because you, you just scroll down through these pages of beautiful album covers and think, oh, what am I going to listen to next? And this one's like, oh, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, so Ben, clearly knows the stuff, because... My God, have I bought a lot of albums after that? Um, well, you've you've bought them all, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. So you get like I think it was like a hundred quid for the whole the whole avant-garde music yeah. discography. And I was Which like, is a, yeah. fuck it, I'm doing it. It's, it's actually a great deal, yeah. But yeah, so if you like that kind of stuff, Ben has his own podcast called the Endless Metal Podcast. It I've not really had a chance to get into it at length much, but. So far, he I've heard him cover both like Yob and Neurosis, oh, which sure. is both stuff I've not really had a chance to get into. I can't remember if we've done some podcasts before, but also um, recently got into the Fathoming Heavy podcast, mm. which is an amazing interview podcast with a lot of like um, mainly American metal bands, like so Sub Rosa, Yob, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Impaled, quite a lot of like that general scene and the interviews are beautifully in depth, um, like just really, um, really heartfelt sounding as well. Like I really enjoyed yeah. that one, and uh, finally Into the Pit, who. Friends of Into the Combine. Oh, cool. Uh, cool. Sorry, not in, no, From the Pit, sorry. From the Pit. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's from, right. That's from right. the Pit. <laughs> yeah, friends of Into the Combine, very similar style to From that. the Combine. <laughs> Into the from Pit. From the Combine. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that, guys. But yeah, they, they, they have that kind of more conversational vibe, and it's like, especially if you're more into your kind of like extreme end of hardcore, they cover that in great depth. Mm. Also, one of the hosts is really into like the most upsetting death metal so again <laughs> if you like their end of year show they've got yeah, that yeah, kind of style that. yeah yeah but yeah please get in touch about all this stuff because yeah we'd love to have the conversation or find more bands like this like Devil's yeah. Blood I completely came across by accident there must mm. be more um, yeah so we thought we'd leave you with one of the short tracks from this album this is We're in the Carnal House of Love <laughs> <laughs> 